vows. Every wedding has them, and every couple tries to memorize them before that big day, when they know that they will be filled with both a mixture of joy and terror. Inevitably, however, when couples are rehearsing their vows, we come to this point, especially if they're traditional, uh, when a particular vow triggers couples, and perhaps you are familiar with it. It goes this way. Will you have this man to be your wedded husband, to live with him after God's commandments and the holy estate of marriage, and will you love him? So far, so good. Honor and obey him so long as you both shall live. Obey? That word goes off like a fire alarm. What do you mean, obey? This is the 21st century. And after all, didn't Princess Diana and Meghan Merkel put an end to all that obey stuff? But let's take the word obey out of the vows. Worldliness, David Wells says, is what makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And I do think it's a symptom of the church's worldliness that when we come to a passage such as the one we come to today in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, that it strikes us as strange and maybe even offensive when it is the very Word of God. And so even, even as we prepare to read this, I want to acknowledge the fact that it will come upon some of our ears as offensive. It's certainly politically incorrect, and yet it is wonderful. It is from God, and it is for our good. We have made it to uh, verses 22 through 24 in Ephesians chapter 5. We've been working through the text, pulp fiction style, starting uh, at the end, defining what marriage is and what marriage is for. Uh, then we have addressed husbands last week, and now we are addressing wives, and we want to make sure that we understand how all these pieces fit together, because the section hangs as one. And, and we might be tempted to misunderstand it if we focus just on one of these pieces in isolation from the whole. And so we'll, we'll set up some of that context after we, we pray, but at this point I want to remind you of the main idea, which is this. Marriage is a gospel drama. And then our exhortation this morning deals with wives in particular. Wives, submit to your husbands. As to the Lord, that's taken out of the text in verse 22, and as the church submits to Christ, that's taken from the text in verse 24. Uh, both of these are grounded in verse 23. It's the reason for both of them. They're, they're anchored to it. So I hope to help you see this. But first, let's, let's pray, and then we will begin our time together. Rob, I think the issue is that this mic over here is on. Yeah, we figured that out? All right, great. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel. Christ crucified for sinners, raised for their justification. We thank you that the gospel is offered freely to anyone who will repent and put their faith in Christ, to anyone who will resolve to stop following their dead and sinful heart and to begin following you, following Jesus. But we thank you that you have called each one of us who claim Christ to yourself. We thank you that you have made us your own. We pray this morning that as we come to a text that deals with marriage and with wives in particular, that any who are here who are single would not uh, simply remove themselves from the conversation, uh, but that they would be reminded that marriage has as its goal, one of its patterned after, and it pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. And so that this message and this section of Scripture is not just for married couples, but for everyone. We ask that as a result of studying it together, uh, we would be filled more and more with your Spirit. 
We ask that you would help us to sense your presence among us and that we would give you the honor and glory and worship that you are due. You are great. And we, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As promised, we're going to look at the big context and then whittle it on down to where we are in Ephesians chapter 5. And so we have split Ephesians into two parts, and you probably know this at this point, but I'm going to continue to remind you. It's repetition, mother of learning, right? Doctrine, part one, the first three chapters, and devotion, right? The next three chapters, chapters four through six. And the doctrine in the first three chapters Uh, We've tried to summarize this way. We've said, God chooses from before the foundation of the world for himself a holy people. A people that he will adopt into his one family. And those people who who God brings to life are all dead. They're dead in their sins. And then we read in verse 4 of chapter 2, but God, because of the great love with which he loves us, made us alive in Christ. This is what God has done. He, he brings through His Word and His Spirit and His kindness and goodness, He brings dead people to life. That's the doctrine. We have been adopted into the family of God by the work of God because of the love of God. Not because of anything good in us, but because of all that is in Him. That's the doctrine. The devotion in the second half of Ephesians tells us not how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are Christians. And since we are in that particular uh, section of the book, I think it's really important to warn you that if you get out a notepad and write down a list of things, these are the things I need to do to be a Christian to ensure that I am right with God, you have completely missed the point of Christianity. Uh, As Christians, we don't live for God's acceptance. We live from His acceptance, from the acceptance we already have in Christ. And so these instructions, they're commands that we need to obey, but they are not going to earn our salvation for us in any way whatsoever. They tell us how to be devoted to God. We've summarized it this way. We've said, uh, we have been adopted into the family of God doctrine, and now we are learning to live up to the family name, devotion. We, who were once dead, have been brought to life. We've been born again. And now we are learning to walk in love after the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. And I don't choose that word walk incidentally. We choose it because it's sprinkled throughout Ephesians and helps us to understand Paul's argument. You see it for the first time there in the First part of chapter 2, he says, don't walk like you used to walk when you were dead in your sins. You, you were dead, but you were kind of like a zombie. You were walking according to the course of the world. You were zombie disciples of Satan. And then, God brought you to life. And now you are to, verse 10 of chapter 2, walk according to the good works which God prepared before you were ever a Christian, before you were ever born, that you should walk in them. God had an idea about what He wanted you to do once He brought you to life. Then we see it show up at the front part of chapter 4. We're told to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We drop down to verse 17 of chapter 4. We are told, do not walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles means the world. Don't live like the world. That's what walk, it's a Hebrew idiom for how you live. Don't live like the world, darkened in their understanding, but be renewed in your minds. Sin and the noetic effects of the fall used to impact even how you think. But now that you are in Christ, you are to think different. You're to think in the new way. You're not to walk in that way. You're not to live that way anymore. You're to put off the old and on the new. You guys remember that little refrain when we were in that section? Off with the old, on with the new. You know, take off the 2020 sweatpants and put on your 2021 church clothes. It's a, it's a new identity. You're, you're taking off the old, putting on the new. And Paul's saying you have a new identity and it's going to manifest itself in new actions. Eventually it comes to verse 2 of chapter 5. tells us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. And then you see in verse 8, to walk as children of the light. And he says, you were once darkness, but now you are light. It's a change of identity. He doesn't say you were 
in the darkness, and now you are in the light. He says you were darkness, and you now are light. See, what you do flows from what you are, and when God makes you alive in Christ Jesus, when you become alive to God, what you are changes from darkness to light. And now he's saying, live in a manner that is consistent with that. You are children of the light. Walk like it. Live like it. And then we come to the last occurrence of the verb walk in the book in verse 15. And it's the one that hangs over the rest of Ephesians. And Paul calls us to walk not as unwise, but as wise. What does that that mean exactly? He's going to tell us to walk wise in light of the evil days in which we live in light of the coming judgment of God, and in light of the very real spiritual warfare that is constantly swirling around us. He says, walk wisely. And then he gives us two injunctions to help us understand that. One in verse 17 of chapter 5, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then the other one, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, don't, don't be controlled by substances or addiction. Don't be... Uh, Drunk with wine, right? That's what controls you. Rather, be controlled by the Spirit of God. Be in submission to the Word of God. You say, well, okay, Paul, you've talked about the Holy Spirit in this book, and we understand that there is an assuring work of the Holy Spirit, which uh, calls us to Christ, lets us know that indeed we are Christians. And we also understand there's this maturing work of the Holy Spirit, wherein your Spirit is making us more and more of what we've been declared in Christ, which is holy. So he says, you've got the Spirit, but I want you to be filled with it. So the question kind of is, well, how? And he says, do this. This is how you pursue the fullness of the Spirit. By singing to one another, making melody to the Lord in your hearts. And so there's this vertical and horizontal dimension to our singing. It's one of the reasons in corporate worship we sing, not just to God, but to one another. So by giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is in the context of corporate uh, worship together as the church. And then verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We want to have hearts full of gratitude. We want to be a singing people. And we want to be a people who are looking for ways to serve one another. That we want to have that Philippians 2 mindset so that when we come together in this place, we are not coming thinking, what can I get out of it? I need to get something for me. Not treating church like Amazon. We're coming and we're saying, what can I give? What can I contribute? We want to be contributors rather than consumers, and so we obey Philippians 2 and we try to adopt the mind of Christ Jesus which is ours in Him. And remember, Philippians 2 goes on to explain how Jesus was humble and submitted Himself to death, even death on a cross. And so we look for ways to serve one another. Then Paul's going to go on, he's going to tell us what this submission looks like in the normal relationships which God has ordered. And he wants to make clear that our call to submit to one another in love out of reverence for Christ does not obviate or eliminate all the natural order, orderings of human relationships. And so he's going to go on and he's going to address husbands and wives, that's the section we've been in, children and parents, and then eventually slaves and masters. Uh, which, you know, in America you say slavery, people think chattel slavery, this is more indentured servitude, almost everyone was a slave, and so we've said employers and employees, and we'll address all of that when we get there eventually. And so what he does that's really interesting is he calls all of those who are under authority to happily submit themselves to it, and all of those who are in authority not to abuse their authority, but to rightly steward it, to steward it for blessing, caring for those who are underneath of their authority. And so we saw last week, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And then eventually, love your wives as your own bodies. Nourish and cherish them. You know, how did Christ love the church? Well, he died for the church. And so we want to have, raise up men who are willing to love their wives to the point of dying for them. And then all the small things leading up to that. We talked about how a lot of men will say, yes, I would die for my wife, but I will not take out the trash. 
I'm in authority in my house, but I've delegated that particular authority to my wife. I mean, she's just really excellent at carrying out the trash. You should see her do it. It's fantastic. It's not an abdication of my authority. I'm just delegating. No. And to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Love them as our own bodies. Those are some of the instructions to the husbands. You'll have to see last week's message for the rest of that. But, but now we come to a particular section that addresses wives and I skipped this section, uh, we defined marriage as this, this way, just very quickly. It said, marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children. That's what marriage is, and marriage is for glorifying God. Marriage, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, is a gospel drama patterned after and picturing Jesus' love for and union with the church, his people. And so how a husband loves his wife and leads his wife teaches us about what Jesus is like. And how a wife submits herself to her husband's leadership teaches us how the church loves, honors, and follows Jesus. And when all these pieces are working together, we get quite a wonderful picture of the gospel. All right, that said, we've all been waiting for finally verse 22. Paul says quite simply, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think this is very important. It mirrors verse 25. You'll notice right off the bat. Uh, in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. And we pointed out that means not somebody else's wife, but, but your wife. And the application of that was don't be romantic with other, anyone other than your wife. Don't view pornography. All of your sexual expression is for her and no one else. And we, we have the other side of that here, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And this, this means, wives, you are not called to submit to every man or any man, but to a particular man. Your husband. He is your leader. This is not a commentary on a woman's role in society as a whole. But it does reflect to us God's design for the family and for the church. You're to submit to and honor your husband. Paul gives us the motivation right there. As to the Lord. To offer submission to your husband. You're to follow his leadership as an expression of your submission to God. So that your following your husband's leadership is an act of worship. And to refuse to do this is an act of rebellion. Don't get me wrong though, I don't want to imply that submission is mindless. One commentator writes, for a wife to submit is not for her to become a doormat, unable to offer an opinion or express disagreement. But what it does mean at the end of the day, if, if a common conclusion cannot be reached and the two parties disagree about a decision, is that for her to submit to the leadership of her husband is for her to go with his decision. So Paul tells us, wives are to submit to their own husbands. Yeah, 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 you say. But what happens uh, supposing your husband is a wife beater? supposing that, that he gets drunk and comes back and beats her up. What should she do then? I'll tell you what she should do. She should call the police. She should press charges. Remember, Calvin has said, and I think rightly, the man who does not love his wife is a monster. Paul is not endorsing those monsters who are out there masquerading as men, abusing their wives. Not what he's endorsing at all. Rather, he is calling wives to submit themselves to the kind of husbands that Christians ought to be. The kind of husbands that he describes in verse 25 through 33. Submit to your own husband as to the Lord. So husbands, just a quick word here. Your wife's submission, you'll notice, is not up to you. You'll look, it's not there. 
you are not commanded to coerce or force your wife to follow your leadership. That's not your job. And what that means is if you are in some heated argument over um, what kind of fabric softener to buy, and, and she wants um, downy, and you want the, is there one with a puppy dog on it? I don't remember. But we'll say there's one with a puppy dog on it, and, uh, and you want the puppy dog on it. It doesn't mean you can say, you know what, woman, you are wrong on this. You must submit to me. That's probably not going to go great. I mean, sure, at the end of the day, you could get the puppy dog thing, but maybe just go with the downy. My point here, you can't force your wife to submit to you because the command is to her. Her submission is just that, hers. Your job is to love her as Christ loves the church. And we pointed out last week that that is without conditions. Paul doesn't say, love your wives as Christ loved the church if she is perfectly lovely and perfectly submissive and does X, Y, and Z. No, he just says, love your wives. And similarly, wives, it doesn't say, submit to your husbands if he's perfect and makes the right decision all the times. Probably not. Uh, husbands are human and they make plenty of mistakes. I don't know if I've ever made any, but um, I, I hear that they do from time to time. And so, but there, it's not conditioned on that, right? He says, you're going to follow this leadership. Her submission is hers. It is voluntary. And so if you were taking notes, this might be one of the things to note about submission is that submission is voluntary. It's voluntary, but ladies, uh, as I've kind of pointed out, it's also mandatory. (laughs) It's voluntary because it's up to you. It's mandatory because it's commanded by God. And what you want to do if you are a woman is to adopt a posture of submitting to your husband as the church submits to Christ. I'm going to probably say this more than once. Paul isn't concerned with laying out particulars for us in these matters. It looks a lot of different ways in different marriages. The idea is that there's a posture to follow the leadership of one's husband. Ladies, are you doing that? Are you willing to submit to your husband as to the Lord? You shouldn't shouldn't do it begrudgingly. You shouldn't be embarrassed about this teaching. This is God's Word. You should embrace this teaching and celebrate it. It might make you weird in the eyes of the culture, but the culture has embraced a, a feminism as if it were freedom when the reality is it's slavery. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Trust what God has said. Submit yourselves to your husband as to the Lord. Well, what's the reason for this ordering of the relationship? Well, Paul's going to give us the reason in verse 23. He says, because or for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And so he picks up on this illustration that he used last, we talked about last week also, where the husband is the head and the wife is the body. He's saying it's similar to how Christ is the head of the church and, and the church is his body. And so we, we said to husbands last week, when you got married, uh, you put on a lot of weight. right? You didn't just put on post-wedding weight. You put on another person. Because she is me. right? She is you. She's your body. And I tried to carry that metaphor across this week. It comes out a little awkward. Uh, but you know, ladies, when you get married, uh, you know, your, your head gets lopped off and you get a new head. It doesn't seem as, as effective. Um, but, but the idea, maybe your head got bigger, right? Uh, the idea is you got a, a new head that, that you are now, when you get married, you're submitting yourself to follow the leadership of, of this man, your husband. This isn't a new teaching, or this is a teaching we find throughout the New Testament. It's not new, it's not novel. But, but let me show you a couple other places where it is. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. But I want you to know, to understand, that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In Colossians 3.18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Uh, there are others. That's your New Testament testimony to it, so it's not just one place here. 
Um, but also, you go, again, we haven't quite answered that question, why is the husband the head of the wife? And it goes back to creation. The husband is made head of the wife, uh, not because the wife is inferior to the husband, definitely not. Both are made in the image of God. Both are, um, have equal dignity, honor, and worth, but have distinct roles. And those are laid out at creation. We don't have time to read through all of Genesis chapter 2, but let me, let me share with you some observations that come from that chapter. First, we see that the male is created first. God puts him into the garden, and that's where he lives. There's a certain temporal priority that you can't ignore. Uh, secondly, God gives to the man, to Adam directly, the task of working and caring for the garden. Even the prohibition that we find in verse 17 of chapter 2, do not eat from the tree of knowledge and of good and evil. All the sequencing in chapter 2 happens before the woman has appeared on the scene. Next we see that the man is alone and that he has need for a helper who compliments him, a helper fit for him. Not good for him to be alone. He's been given that cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply, and he can't figure that out without Eve for obvious anatomical reasons. Next, we see the naming of the animals before the creation of the woman inevitably results in two conclusions. Uh, one is that human beings are distinct from the rest of God's creation, distinct as his image bearers in particular, that man rules over the animals. And part of the reason that we see Adam naming the animals is to demonstrate his authority, his dominion over that which God has entrusted to him. Right? He's not just naming things because he's got a great imagination and he has a, a knack for stringing together funny-sounding syllables. Right? It's, it's an authority, of, or it's an emphasis of his authority. Next we see that the creation of the woman is for the man. She is called Wu-man which establishes her as part of him and from him, and yet we see that together they come and make this complementary whole, like a lock and a key, or a bow and a violin. So she is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And so there's both a delight in their sameness and their difference. He is man. She is womb man. She was created to be a helper suitable for him. And he names her twice, we see. Woman before the fall, Eve, or mother of the living, after the fall. The narrative flow unavoidably creates a certain kind of relationship. She's not called into existence to help the animals. She's called into existence to help him. He is not called into existence to help her. Right? She doesn't exist. So, this doesn't imply any kind of ontological inferiority. But it does unavoidably presuppose a distinction in roles between the man and the woman. Once more, we, we want to reiterate, there is no inferiority in the woman. Men and women are both made in God's image equally. Both are worthy of dignity, honor, and worth. Both have great value and both have been assigned different roles as it relates to God's construction of the institution of marriage. And when both are committed to loving and serving one another in a Christ-like manner, when they're committed to obeying God's word in these matters, we get a pretty beautiful picture. Dr. Marita comments, we see a picture of the husband's and the wives having equal value, yet having different roles within marriage. You might compare it to a slow dance. One person leads and one follows. One initiates and the other responds. Both are necessary for the dance to happen. And when both fulfill their roles, well, it's a beautiful thing to behold. You see, when we try to order our marriage relationships the way that we want rather than the way that God wants, well, you kind of start stepping on one another's feet. If it's a dance, only one person can lead. And if both people try to lead, it goes very poorly. <laughs> the idea is that God has established that the husband should lead the wife. You go, why? But quite simply, 
He was made first, and she was made for Him. She was made for the glory of God, yes, and to be His glory, as we read in 1 Corinthians 11. And so this is the reason that Paul lays down for the establishment of man as head of the wife. So if we're laying out reasons here, uh, we want to say, wives, uh, you are to submit to your husbands, motivated uh, by, as to the Lord, motivated because this is a submission that's offered to God as worship. And you also want to submit to your husband because he is your head by God's design and decree. And once more, I want to reiterate, do not be embarrassed about this or put off by this. Embrace it. Rejoice in the way that God has ordered the universe. He's for your good. His Word is never going to lead you astray or into a a thing that is ultimately bad for you. God is after your good and His glory. He's your head. And then you also see this, this next line. Let's go to verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. As the church submits to Christ, let me point out a really obvious um, application here. If you are a Christian, you are to submit in every area of your life to the Lord Jesus. It's not as if you can have some secret sin that you're holding on to and say, this part of my life is mine. You have all the other stuff, Jesus, but I am Lord over here. I'm not going to obey your particular command about this or that. This is, it's, not, it's mine. Jesus is not an assistant. He's Lord. He's not your co-pilot. He's the pilot. If He is not Lord over every area of your life, then He's not Lord at all. That's what it reveals about you if you are trying to hold on to your sin and claim Christ. The only way you can take hold of Christ is if you renounce your sin and put your hands on Him by faith. I'm not calling anyone to perfection. We all battle against sin. We all stumble and fall, but Again, the idea here is a posture where you have agreed with God about your sin. That's all it is, right? Like When it comes to sin, instead of taking your side and trying to justify yourself, you're taking God's side. You're saying, God, you're right. My sin's wrong. I want to obey you. I was made to be in relationship with you. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I want you to know that you can have peace with God. That you were made to honor Him and to enjoy Him and to glorify Him forever. And the only place you're going to find true satisfaction and life is in Christ alone. I want you, you can be forgiven of any sin if you believe in Jesus. If you will, as He would say, take up your cross and follow Him. Friend, I hope that you would believe this morning. Church, we are called to profess with our lips, yes, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and also to follow Him with a cross on our backs, submitting to Him in every area of our lives. There's no area that is off-limits to Jesus. They likewise, wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. This just means there's not, not like you can say, I'm going to honor my husband in these three areas, and I'm going to go ahead and dishonor him in these six or seven. Right? And it's a, a posture of honoring and following the loving leadership of your husband in, in all things. A married couple works together as one. And again, it's just as a husband's love for his wife is without condition, so too is a wife's submission to her husband. He's to follow him, even if he's not the best of leaders. In fact, we, we learn elsewhere, that's true even if he is an unbeliever. Right? 
And I don't want to kill this with qualifications, but let me add qualifications that I meant to earlier. <laughs> a woman is never to follow her husband into sin. Right? Peter says we must obey God rather than man. So if your husband is leading you into sin, hey, um, sweetheart, you know, we're going to go rob the bank. And so as the leader of this house, get in there with the gun, pop a couple off at the ceiling, tell everybody to get on the floor. Uh, she shouldn't obey that command. Shouldn't do it. Should never follow your husband into sin. Secondly, uh, she shouldn't follow her husband into a violation of her conscience. And I don't mean to you, for you to use that, well, this, it's a violation of my conscience to do some X, Y, and Z. But in terms of like a real conscience issue, Paul tells us in Romans, that which does not proceed from faith is sin. So you don't have to, I don't think that the Bible requires you to follow your husband in those particular matters. I do think that even where you were to disagree with your husband, if it were relating to sin or conscience, that that would require a posture of submission even as you did it. All right, qualifications aside, uh, wives are called to submit to their husbands, and we see elsewhere in Scripture, even if they are unbelievers. 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I, this passage is amazing to me. It says, you can follow your husband, you can submit yourself to him as God has designed marriage, even if he's not a Christian. And one of the byproducts of that is that he might actually become a Christian because of this conduct. That's a powerful thing. That your submission can be so attractive, so persuasive, that God might use it to convert an unbelieving husband. Let's pray that that's so. Submission is attractive. Again, if you're taking notes and underlining some of these characteristics of submission, I think the first thing I said is submission is not mindless. Uh, secondly, we're going to say submission is attractive. It has the power to help persuade unbelievers of the truth. And I've seen this in my own marriage, and let me caveat here. I am not, I just want to make clear, I'm not putting out, do these three things to be submissive, right? We are about posture, not particulars. So with that caveat, let me share just a couple things from my own marriage, anecdotally here, if you'll allow me. Um, no objections heard yet. You missed your point. You can't object now. Uh, I, most of you know Chelsea and I enough. You've been around enough to know uh, that our first year of marriage was not uh, puppy dogs and rainbows, uh, but more uh, porcupines. Is it porcupine or porcupine? Porcupines and, and rain. It wasn't fun. And most of that was because, this is going to shock you, I am uniquely selfish. I told you it was going to be shocking. But what she resolved to do early on and has continued to do is to su submit herself to my leadership and to find kind of fun, creative ways to do it. And, and one, and this is, you're going to be like, that's so silly, really? But one is she just routinely will come to me with her little calendar in her hand and she'll say, um, <laughs> dragon, she calls me dragon, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, <laughs> most of you know that too. Uh, she'll say, dragon, uh, these are the things I have laid out for the week. Is there anything you want to change? Anything you think I should change? Uh, I, want, I want to get together with so-and-so. Do you think that's all right? Do you think that's wise? And 99% of the time, I'm like, sounds great. But there, I mean, there are times where I go, hey, you know what? Uh, maybe it's not so wise for you to visit with this person on this day or whatever. Can we move that to another time? Um, also, you have a million things on your calendar this week. Uh, let's try to find one that we can drop. We want to schedule some margin into our lives. Um, and then let's make next week a more restful kind of week. And she'll say, 
okay. Or if she really wants to do it, she'll be like, do you really think that? Can we work this out? And, and typically I'll go, yeah. The, the point there, what she's doing in this very small action is she's coming to me and she is endorsing my leadership of her. And I've got to tell you, it not only reminds me of my responsibility as her head, but it also incites my love for her. It reminds me, her devotion to me reminds me that I ought to be more devoted to her. That her welfare is part of my responsibility as her husband. Her submission is very, it's attractive. One more anecdote, and then I'm done with anecdotes, I think. Uh, we went a few weeks ago to, to hike to White Rock Falls, and we were up on Skyline Drive, wherever that is. It's her, myself, uh, our five children, and her sister. And I think it's about two miles down there. We never made it, that's why I say I think. Um, but, but we got about 0.3 miles into our hike, and of course, uh, Isaac and Benjamin decided that they were overwalking for the day. And so you know, if you've been on a trail, just plop on down and sit, and you know, you got to make decisions. Uh, but my wife, you know, soft, tender-hearted person that she is, she's like, oh, children, I will carry you. I will carry all of you. So she's got like the baby strapped to her chest, uh, one kid hanging on the, the back of her from her throat, like in a chokehold almost, and then she's trying to get the other one on her hip. And I mean, together those two are probably like 80 pounds, 70, 80 pounds. And she's just, you know, trying to walk along the trail. And I turned around and I simply said, no, no, like, you're 5'2", you know, eyes of blue, Gucci, 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 goo, I, I love you, you know, but, but no, like you're not over this, you broke your foot a few years ago, it still gives you issues, you, there's no need for you to carry all of your children on your back, stop it. She didn't want to put the kids down. We talked about it a little bit, and eventually she obliged, not because she wanted to, but because she wanted to honor the Lord Jesus. And she wanted to be submissive to my leadership. Recognizing that the decision I was, was making for us was for her good. And yes, I ended up hauling the children most of the way. It was not great. <laughs> my, point here, my point here is that submission is attractive, but submission is also going to be hard at times. And I think it's especially when you would have a disagreement with your husband and you don't want to do it, this command actually comes to bear. Like, all right, I am, despite you know, my disagreement with this, we can't figure out, um, we, we want to move here. This is a big decision. We've talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. We can't come to a conclusion. But I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to follow your lead on this for better or for worse. Because you're my head. And it might be for worse, and I'm not going to hold it against you if it is. I'm going to follow because I love you and I'm devoted to you and I trust your leadership and I trust the Lord's word. I trust the way that he's made me. I trust that if I honor you in this by, and honor him in this, it will be for my good and for your good. And notice that, and I think this is a key point, love your, that's verse 24, verse 24 as the church submits to Christ, Wives should submit in everything to their husbands. As the church submits to Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? Does the church submit to Christ as a wrestler submits to a better wrestler? What's the mental image that's brought up when we start speaking of submission? Is it just be under and don't ask any nasty questions? Carson writes, Rather, if you listen to the whole voice of Scripture in this regard, the submission of the church to Christ is joyful, wholehearted, Grateful, willing, voluntary, doubtless because of grace. But still, that's the way it's supposed to be. We submit to Christ happily. Remember, and as an expression of our love for Jesus. Remember he says in John 14, 50, If you love me, you will obey me. So we obey Jesus because we want to, because it's for our good, and because we love Him and we want to express that love for Him. And how could we not? How could we not? Jesus, if you are a Christian, Jesus bled and died for you. How could you not be compelled by His love for you to love Him back? 
And listen, it wasn't easy for him. Ladies, this is a good part of Scripture for you to remember if you are struggling with submission. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is trembling before the prospects of the cross. He's sweating blood, and he's praying to God, if there's a way to remove this from me, do it. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus submits himself to the Father because he and the Father share the same heart. And he goes to the cross and he's suspended in the air where he asphyxiates. And he does so for you and for me and for the glory of God. So, so how can we not submit ourselves to him? How can we not be compelled by his love? Unbeliever, you can be forgiven your sins because of the death of Christ. You should trust Him. Church, you have been forgiven your sins because of the death of Christ. He defeated death for us. He took hell so that we can have heaven. He has guaranteed to us our own resurrection. He's proved to us His ability to deliver on that promise by resurrecting Himself. He's promised to us to make earth and heaven one. Our God is so benevolent. How can we look at God who has created us and given us all these good things, and then when He asks us to do something, say, now, like a little kid stamping our feet. No, we ought to delight to worship Him. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it's when we do that that we will find ourselves most free and most satisfied. And wives, that pertains to your marriages. Submission rightly pictures the relationship between Jesus and the church. Remember we said that marriage is a gospel drama. And the husband is cast in the role of Jesus and the wife is cast in the role of the church. But when you commit to happily submitting to your husband, you are playing well your part as the church. We who are the church happily submit to Jesus. So too do wives who love Jesus. One last practical thing to say about submission before we conclude. Submission, again, if you're underlining. So I've got a few here uh, trying to check those notes. <laughs> submission is not mindless. Submission is attractive. Submission rightly pictures Jesus and the church. And then lastly, submission creates harmony rather than struggle. I'm going to quote Dr. Sproul here. This passage should put to rest once and for all the myth that marriages are to be 50-50. I can't think of a worse scenario for a marriage than to have the authority in that relationship divided equally. When two people are together like that, then nobody has authority. You are in a perpetual power struggle where one is trying to get control of 51% of the stock. And then you are exceedingly destructive to a family. When the Bible says that the husband is to be the head of the home and the wife is to be in submission to her husband, it does not give the man a license to tyranny. It does not mean that the man is never to consult with his wife or lean upon her wisdom and take seriously her concerns and her judgment. When Adam was created with dominion over the earth, Eve ruled over the earth with him as his helpmate, not as his servant. In a sense, God made Adam king over the creation and gave Eve to him as his queen, not his slave girl. There is all the difference in the world between a queen and a slave girl. Brothers and sisters, King Jesus has adopted the church, his bride, as his own. He's united the church to himself as his bride, made us his own body. We're told that we'll share in his rule in some sense. I'm not even sure what that means. This is the relationship that the marital relationship is patterned after and is aimed at picturing. Wives, you are not slaves. 
You are helpmates. You are as queens. So in light of what marriage is and what marriage is for, remember we've said marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children. And marriage is for glorifying God. It is a gospel drama patterned after and picturing Jesus' love for and union with the church. In light of that, husbands, play your part well. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Love your wives as your own body. And wives, love your husband. Submit to them as to the Lord. Submit to them as the church submits to Christ. This will bring honor to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for especially parts of it like this, which are sandpaper on the skin of our culture and our cosmopolitan sensibilities. We thank You that Your Word is sharp enough to cut us and cut out of us sins that we might, to, might hold on to. We pray that You would work in us to not make righteousness appear strange, but to appear right. Pray that You would help us to see worldliness not as normal, but as sinful. Lord, as You reveal these things to us, we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You sent Jesus to die for us and to redeem us from our sins. There are husbands and wives here today, God, who have failed miserably in their roles. Husbands who have acted as monsters and wives who have acted as rebels. Pray that you would help both to pursue Christ's likeness, to be filled with your Spirit. Pray that you would help both to recognize that they cannot outsin your mercy or your grace. We thank you that there is forgiveness for your people. There is new mercy each and every day. And though our sins are many, your mercy is more. So Lord, we, we thank you for your forgiveness once more today. We thank you for the peace and joy we have in Christ. And we commit ourselves to pursuing holiness, to becoming in practice what you've declared us in Christ. We commit ourselves to living as children of the light, living not as unwise, but as wise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.